All right, time for the kids to come on up front. If you are a kid who is visiting this morning, you can still come on up and join us. We'd love to have you. Come on over here. Feel free to bring somebody with you if you'd like. All right, come on up. Find somewhere to sit. Good to see everyone this morning. All right, so this morning, as you've heard, we're going to be in Psalm 22, right? We're going through the Psalms in the summer. And you've heard this before. Psalm 22 is similar to other Psalms, where at the beginning it says, a Psalm of David. Does anybody know who David is? Who's David? Do you know? Oh, who knows? Who's David? Who wrote him? David from the Old Testament. King David, right? Remember King David? He was a king in the Old Testament, right? So King David wrote many of these psalms. And so they were. this psalm, Psalm 22, was like that. It was written by King David, and it was written based on his experience, right? He wrote based on what he was experienced. But what's important for us to know is that these aren't just David's words, but they are words that are inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, right? And so we see that all throughout the Bible, the whole Bible is inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, and, but it's written down by different people, different men, right? But it comes to us from God. And so even though Psalm 22 is written by David through some of his experience, it, came, it comes to us from God. And so God, by the Holy Spirit, gave words to men uh, that were applied to their lives. But it's not just their circumstances only, but even more so, many of the words we see in the Bible, and especially in Psalm 22, apply to Jesus Christ. So looking ahead to Jesus. And so many times in David's writings, the Psalms and the words he's using are actually speaking ultimately of Jesus. All right? Now, why would that be? Why would people in the Old Testament need to hear about Jesus? What do you think? Do they need, do, would they have need to hear of Jesus? They do, right? Because they were looking ahead to the Savior to come. So they knew of their sin. They knew their need for a Savior. And so they looked at, need to look ahead to the Savior, Jesus. And we see much of this throughout uh, Psalm 22 here. In verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So David must have had circumstances in his life where he felt like God turned away from him. And we, you can read about a lot of that in the Old Testament, but we know ultimately that applies to Jesus on the cross. Jesus cried that out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was bearing our sin. He took our sin and was forsaken, turned away from by God. We read in verses 7 and 8 that David was experiencing mocking. They were making fun of him. And we know that ultimately that was Jesus on the cross as well. Soldiers mocked Jesus. They made fun of him. The crowds did. Even the men crucified next to him on the cross, nailed to crosses next to him, were mocking him, making fun of him. In Psalm, uh, verse 18, we see that David speaks of divided garments. You remember when, I don't know what, how that applies to David, what his experience was with that. But remember Jesus on the cross and the soldiers divided up his clothes, his garments, so they could have them for themselves. And then the whole end of Psalm 22, David speaks of salvation and restoration. Even though he was for, felt maybe forsaken by God, he knew God's salvation 
and being restored to a relationship with God. And so how do we see that in Jesus Christ? Jesus was raised from the dead, right? He was raised from the dead, providing a way of salvation and for us sinners to be reconciled, to be restored to God in a right relationship with God. And so we see that throughout the the Psalm 22 that actually ultimately applies to Jesus Christ. And so people of the Old Testament knew their sin and they needed to look to Jesus, the Savior to come, right? And we now, we know of our sin, right? And we also have to keep looking to Jesus because he's our Savior and the one who we look for. So as Pastor Jeremy comes to preach, keep listening for how Psalm 22 applies to Jesus Christ. All right, thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. We are in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 22. We're taking 10 psalms a summer, and this summer we're in Psalm 21 to 30, one a week. And so you can open to Psalm 22. I was thinking, uh, as Pastor Jeff was talking, in 2 Timothy 2, I am charged to preach the word to you to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and then you are warned that not to be people who won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, you'll accumulate for yourselves as teachers to suit your own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so this is a, a temptation for every believer that you won't come and be attentive to God's word. That you won't have ears to hear. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it is comforting God's people uh, regarding enemies. That God's judgment will come upon those who afflict God's people. That God will grant relief to us who are afflicted. He's talking mainly about the end of time, but it also happens in history when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of his of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints to be marveled at among all who have believed. So this is speaking of those who rather than confessing faith in Christ and turning to him, afflict his people. And we are to take comfort because we have believed. We have embraced the testimony given to you and believed. Well, what is that testimony? What are you to be attentive to? What are you to sit up straight and give your focus to? It's Christ, him crucified, him risen. My concern for you this morning is that this will be one of those things that you've just heard before. That you've heard the gospel, you've heard of Christ crucified, you've heard of the resurrection, Easter already happened, can't you find something else to talk about? And yet, don't you know 
that everything in this world and everything in your flesh wars against you truly, sincerely believing this gospel and hoping alone in Christ for your salvation. And isn't that the first thing you ever learned about Jesus? I was thinking about that when I was a kid. What's the first thing I knew about him? It's that he died for me. And it's that truth that continues to grab hold of us. It's the truth of truths. It's the joy of our joys. This one thing, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. It's the verse that Awana kids learn. God shows his love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so do you have ears to hear this this morning? Psalm 22 is referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. One commentator says it's not so much prophecy as history. It's as if he was there watching Christ's suffering on the cross. It's that detailed of his sufferings. And so come again, brothers and sisters, and hear what he said in Psalm 22, verse 26. It says this, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Psalm 22 is a feast. It's set before you to come and be nourished in your mind, in your soul, in your body, that Christ was crucified and raised. And I wonder if you're too full of yourself or too full of things of this world or too full of concerns or too full of getting your own way or too full of whatever else that you no longer have any hunger, any need to hear again that Christ was crucified for you. And so where are you at in this? Well, give ear. I'm going to read the 31 verses of Psalm 22, pray, and then explain a bit of the text. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. We don't really know what that is, but likely it's some kind of musical accompaniment, a tune, a melody that they already had that the lyrics fit to. This is how music comes about often. Somebody will write lyrics, find a tune to sing it to. And so he's saying, here, choir master, here's a new song, and here's the tune to sing it to, maybe. It's a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day. But you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from my mother or from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help me. 
Many bulls encompass me. Many strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands, my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for you have not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has, he, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Teach us, O Lord, your ways and give us strength to keep it to the end. Give us understanding that may we, we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. You have given all for us. Teach us to delight in it. Incline our hearts, but not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm again to us, your servants, your promises that we may fear you. In your righteousness, give us life. Amen. Again, we see this as a psalm of David. We don't know the event or events uh, that caused David to write such a lament turned to rejoicing. And this is a lament, at least the first half of it. I want to again encourage you that this is a neglected part of our faith. <clears throat> we have sorrows. We have losses. We have times when it feels like no one cares, that God himself isn't listening. And the first 18 or so verses are giving you words, giving you heart on how to wail before your God when you are in misery and in pain and loss and sorrow. It's teaching the faithful how to live by faith. So it's a song, again, I want to continue to remind us of this, that God has been so gracious to us in giving us 150 songs in Scripture to be sung. 
So we know that David wrote this, but it's not mainly about David. It's about Christ. Here's what one of the commentators, David Kidner, says. No Christian can read this without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. No incident recorded in David's life can begin to account for this psalm. It is not a description of trouble, but of execution. This is about Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, He who rightly sees Christ in this psalm will no longer see nor care to see David. You heard that when we read it. This is about Christ's suffering. So last week I said Psalm 21 was typically used in the church calendar to be sung on Ascension Day. Psalm 22, what day in the church calendar is it sung on? Good Friday, right. This psalm was in the church calendar reserved for the day of Christ's execution. It's, the psalm itself, as you heard when I read it, was in two parts. Verses 1 to 21, the sufferings of Christ. Verses 22 to 31, the celebration of the resurrection and the kind of worldwide outworkings of his being raised from the dead. So we have suffering and resurrection. Grave exaltation. Death and life. It's the gospel. The gospel is Christ crucified, died, buried, and risen. That's Psalm 22. Isn't it glorious? Pastor Jeff said it well. How was Abraham justified? How did David get forgiveness of his sins and counted righteous before God? How did Elijah or any of the other Old Testament faithful believers, how did they come to be forgiven by God by faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't know his name, but they knew of his sufferings. Same way that you and I do. We have much more data, much more information. We know the details. They didn't know, although they had much, didn't they? So uh, this psalm is ultimately about Christ. Let me read just a little bit to unpack it for you. This psalm, uh, this is uh, from a guy named Horn in, in his explanation. This psalm, which the church is appointed to be used on Good Friday, as our Lord uttered the first verse of it when hanging on the cross, consists in two parts. I already explained that to you, but let me walk through the psalm. Verses 1 and 2, complain as being forsaken. Verses 3 to 6, acknowledge the holiness of the Father and plead for the former deliverance of the church. Verses 6 to 8, again, describe his humiliation, the taunts and reproaches. Verses 9 to 11, again, express faith and pray for help. Verses 12 to 8, go back to very particular description of his suffering. And then verses 19 to 21, repeat his supplication. So you see this back and forth in the first half of the psalm. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 3, he turns to faith. He goes back to his crying out of his sufferings. Then he turns to faith. Then he goes back into a deeper description of his agonies and sufferings. Then he turns to faith. This is the Christian life. This is the life. Then in the second half, he resolves to praise the Father for his deliverance and exhorts the church to do the same. And then he looks to the future and sees the conversion of all of the world to faith and worship of the true God. So this psalm 
contains the whole of human history. God created the world in order to send his son into it to save his beloved people. And at the end of time, the full effects of the cross and the resurrection are seen in that all the ends of the earth turn to the Lord. This psalm is the world in miniature. This is it, beginning to end. Right? The Alpha and the Omega. This is it. From God's eternal past and sending his son to the moment where he died and was raised and our redemption was completed to the end of time when Jesus Christ comes, returns, and all the earth gathers before him all of his redeemed to sing his praises on a recreated earth forevermore. That's what this psalm has in it. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't God's word incredible? What a gift. Then why do you not read it? (laughs) How could you miss reading Psalm 22? Because you won't read the Bible. This past week in our Bible reading program, we read Psalm 22. Now, you might not use our Bible reading program. Maybe you have another, whatever. Why won't you read the Bible? Fathers, why do you neglect making your children after dinner or before the day starts or at bedtime opening the word and reading? You could have read Psalm 22 to your children this week. They could have heard the news from dad's lips, Christ crucified and risen. Come on. Right? Do we hate our children? Do we hate our own souls? Are we so not dull and neglectful over these great and weighty matters that we know that they need chicken for their bellies? And we work real hard to give it to them, but we utterly neglect their souls and their life before God. Our own. Don't we need God's word? The afflicted. Doesn't your soul need it? Look at verse 26 again. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. What does that mean? It means that we eat of God's word and are satisfied on it in our souls, in our hearts. I didn't have that in my notes at all. And so take it, brothers, sisters, wives, Badger your husbands to read God's word with you. Here's the one time you can nag him. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Get after him. So we see in the first 18 verses the cross. Now, this is one part of Scripture, praise God, that we're often very familiar with. We have the gospel accounts. We have four eyewitness accounts of Christ's suffering. The Lord's Supper. The prayer in the garden. Where Christ sweat blood. It was so painful. It was so hard. He knew what was coming. We see the betrayal of Judas with a kiss, his arrest, 
his trial before the Jewish council where they spit upon him and cover his face and strike him and mock him. We see his deliverance to Pilate, his trial, or Pilate, his trial before Pilate, the crowd choosing Barabbas. Jesus mocked, beaten, whipped, and crucified. We see what happens as he hangs on the cross. Pierced between two thieves, his garments divided up, hanging naked. They're gambling over his clothing. The robbers reviling and those passing by jeering. The chief priest mocking. The darkness that covers the land. And finally, Christ cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was probably more like that, wasn't it? I doubt it. Now, we always want to remember Christ didn't suffer, he didn't die because of what he had done, but for us. For his elect, beloved people. This was said at his birth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ died for our sins. And Psalm 22 records for our sake, for our faith, for our help, kind of more of what it was like for him when he was on the cross. Only a thousand years before he was there. Isn't that something? Again, as the one commentator put it, this isn't so much prophecy as history. It reads like history. A thousand years before it happened. So let's walk through a few of these. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Well, I think the second part of verse 1 explains it. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my God. Remember that the one hanging there is the eternal Son of God. For all eternity, all he had known with the Father was intimate fellowship, union, intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Spirit for all time. None of us are or have what he has with the Father. His relation to the Father is unique. Now, as he hangs on the cross, the Father will not answer his pleas. It's not like the Father covered his eyes and plugged his ears so he'd have to hear him. It's that he refused to deliver him. He wouldn't end his suffering. The Father willed it. Why? Why would the father not answer his son's groanings? Why would he not give him rest from his sufferings? He could have done it. We all agree. Why? If the father rescued him, we would have no rescue. If the father saved him, we'd have no salvation. And so his son was reduced to this cry. 
for us. Look at verse 6. I am a worm and not a man. And he, after verses 1 and 2 in this plea, he, in verses 3 to 5, remembers God's holiness, remembers the history of God delivering his people, but not me. I'm a worm. Worms are just a mass of wriggly, slimy, weak, flesh. That's Christ on the cross, just reduced to quivering misery. And they're just mocking him. He's scorned, he's despised. All who see me in verse 7 mock me. They wag their heads. And they, they needle him right at the point of the most tender spot. You say you trust in God. Let God deliver him, right? You delight in God. God delights in you. God will rescue you, right? It's irony. Because he does trust in the Lord. He is the delight of his father. But a far greater rescue will come through his suffering death in the resurrection. But what terrible scorn he had to endure. He was lowered to the lowest place of worm so that we could be lifted up to God. He endured hell so that you could have heaven and be welcome to the Father. Again in verse 9, he returns to considering God's faithfulness even from his conception, from his birth. Then again, he goes back. The picture of these bulls, these are strong, strong animals. They're all around him. They're like lions roaring, snapping their jaws. And in verse 14, I am poured out like water. There's nothing left. He is spent. There's none to save. It's like dogs surrounding him. They pierce his hands and his feet. Isn't that something that that's said there? In a thousand years before that actually happened. He's poured out. This is love. He bore this pain so that we could come to the Father. Just think about this. This is what we deserve. It's been said many times. He took the nails for me. His body was broken. We get to eat the Lord's Supper bread. <laughs> That's what we get. Isn't that something? His body was actually bo- broken. He was poured out like water. All of his joints were like out of joint. And we get to eat bread. His blood was shed and we get to drink wine. You see that? His was the suffering. Ours is the blessing. But don't presume on God's grace, brothers and sisters. This is a great danger to your souls. That you are not careful in your faith. That you just think that it'll all work out. That because you're 
parents are Christians and you go to a good church, that you hear God's word, that that's it. So don't be careless with your soul. Don't presume on God's mercy. Christ didn't endure this pain and shame so that you could kind of wistfully think it'll all work out in the end without you actually believing and actually taking up your cross and following Jesus Christ. So be careful. But it's Father's Day, so let me apply this again to men. This is true for women as well. But fathers, Christ loved you and gave himself for you. All of your fatherly sins And they are many. Can be forgiven, are forgiven, through this suffering. He died for your fatherly sins. He died for your neglect, your laziness. He died for your harshness, your meanness, your never being pleased with your children. He died for your refusal to live an example of a Christian life before your children. He died for you having priorities for your children that are far less important than their life before God. He died for your refusal to discipline them. But he died not only to forgive you, but to restore you. So that you could love your wife as Christ loves the church with real tenderness and affection. Did Jesus die on the cross kind of stone-faced without any affection for the people he was dying for? Was he emotionally distant from his bride? Was his heart not in it? Would Jesus be the kind of Savior who would come home from this hard work and just have no affection for his bride, no words for her, no care? This is often lacking among men is some kind of intimacy and affection of giving their heart to their wives. But you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And doesn't Jesus again and again declare his affection, his heart, his intimacy in ways that our world now thinks is gay for his bride? He is not ashamed to let the world see his intimacy with us. And we're to love our wives like that. With real emotion that connects to them such that they begin to trust our care for them. That we won't be stingy. That we won't continue to give them blank looks and make them read our minds with wondering how we're thinking about them. Amen, sisters? Don't you just wonder what he's thinking? Is he mad at me? Is he disappointed? And you just want to say, I I can't read your face. Is that a dirty look? Is that a, what is that? That you'd be willing to know that, yes, you're not a woman, but sometimes you need to explain what you're thinking. To give your wife the honor of that. 
But more than anything, just pause and wonder at this. Consider this moment, this suffering, this end. This isn't Disney. This isn't CGI. This is Jesus Christ, God-made man with real skin, real bones, real nerves, real vessels filled with real blood, encircled by ravenous, powerful, dark enemies, pierced. Does anything matter to you like that should matter? But, praise God, that isn't all. The second part of Psalm 22 is the be-all, end-all, worldwide, post-resurrection celebration. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We worship the risen and reigning King of all kings. God did not despise his affliction. He raised him from the dead. He raised him to be the point, the object of all praise. Even as we see in verse 27, to the end of the world, to the conquering of the earth. So Psalm 22 has this movement, this pattern, suffering and then glory. Shame and then exaltation, sorrow and then joy. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. This is our salvation. Suffering and then exaltation. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, but there's a contingency provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. The cross comes before the resurrection. This is one of the things that the church is lying about today. That we can have glory without sacrifice. We can have the best life you could ever have here and now without suffering anything for Jesus, without saying no to yourself. It's the opposite, isn't it? Well, what's suffering? Well, we are to deny ourselves. Sometimes you have to suffer saying no to dating an unbeliever. Sometimes you have to suffer the saying no to most media You have to refuse the gossip. You have to set aside what you want to do for the sake of serving somebody at church. You may suffer illness and injury. Remember the man born blind? The question the disciples asked, who sinned? He or his parents? What did God say? What did Jesus say? It wasn't the result of sin so that God's glory and power could be displayed in him. You might have to suffer illness and injury in this world not because of your sin, not because of the sins of others, just so that God's glory could be displayed in you. You might have to suffer the sin of somebody else against you. You may have to suffer in this world for actually following Jesus, that you will not wear the gay pride flag pin at your workplace. You won't attach to your emails in your workplace your preferred pronouns. And you'll suffer for it. 
Because we follow a suffering Savior. And if we will suffer with him, we'll be raised to glory like him, with him. Parents, you may have to suffer the scorn of your children for saying no to them because you're following Jesus. This is the very thing that many parents are unwilling. And fathers, you may have to suffer the scorn of your wife for saying no in a place that she thinks we should say yes to because she doesn't want to break the relationship. This is a hard work that fathers should do. There's a little mini rebellion in your household. All the kids and your wife are against you because you are saying no to something that isn't that big of a deal, but you see it as a big deal. Will you suffer that? Why will you suffer that? Why should you suffer that? Because of the resurrection to come. Because, as Paul says at the end of Philippians, I'm turning there so I can see it, say it right, that I would be willing to suffer the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings now, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So we are in a world of trouble, financially right now, isn't it? We were driving to the Twin Cities for the wedding and we found gas in Menominee for four sixty one. <laughs> what are you gonna do with this financial trouble? Well, we look to God. We have faith in his son, we Learn to be wise with our finances and not go into a bunch of credit card debt. We trust in God who clothed the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air. And how much more will him who spent his son for us take care of us? Fathers, you may have a very bad relationship with your children. That might be due to you. And you don't think there's anything that can be done anymore. But doesn't Christ raise the dead? Doesn't God redeem the years that the locusts have eaten? Part of the work of being a man is to get back up. You told your son that. Son, just get up. Quit crying. Get going. Isn't that what we have faith in our resurrected Savior for? And then lastly, look, look at where this psalm ends with evangelism, missions. It names kind of three groups. The afflicted in verse 26, all of the ends of the earth, all of the families of the nations, all people groups, and then children of believers. Three groups to consider in evangelizing. Those who are afflicted. Those who are forgotten, the poor, the orphan, the widow. Shouldn't Christians be particular, paying particular attention to them? 
those who are being abused, those women who are being taken for their bodies. Isn't this something that we as Christians should want to bring the gospel to these groups? Paying attention particularly to those people right here who are those. What will happen? They eat and be satisfied. Eat on who? Christ. And find satisfaction in a world that has only ever given them affliction. They may praise the Lord. And then the second group. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. This is looking at missions. This is looking at bringing the gospel and evangelizing those groups of people, those nations who have not heard the gospel. So we have this promise of victory. But again, doesn't it start here? And are considering, considering evangelizing those people that we work with, live near, are on our children's sports teams, that we care to live Christian before them, to be in prayer for them, and to take opportunity with them to proclaim the gospel, that they may worship the king. And then in verse 30, Posterity shall serve him, and shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. We kill the unborn, our culture. Right? We despise unborn children. But here, it says that they'll hear the gospel. We shouldn't kill them. We should raise them in the Lord. We should evangelize them. It's been said that the least reached people group in the church are the children. And we want to be a church that loves children, that welcomes children, that continues to call them to faith in Christ, that raises them in, with discipline and love and does a lot for them. We want to be a church that goes out of our way to help them to enjoy being a part of the church. What for? So that they all, those three groups, can proclaim that he has done it. That's such a great end of the song. That make you feel something? He has done it. He has accomplished it. It is finished. So we praise him for it. We glory in him, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, help us to love your Son, who is the Savior of all who will believe, even to the end of the world, even to our children, even those who are afflicted, because he suffered, bled, and died, was raised. And so help us to worship him. Help us to have nothing that competes with our allegiance and our affection for him. Please, Father. Give us faith to rejoice in your son and to follow him only without apology, in love of others. And so, God, may your mercy be on us in this way. Help us to give our attention, our hearts to him who has done such for us that he has done it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Let's consider your Savior. And ask God for increasing love for him. So how is your love and affection for Christ? Is it warm and growing or kind of stagnant or even cold? 
Either way, meditate on what he's done for you in Psalm 22 and ask God for more love to him who suffered, bled, died, and was raised for you. You, therefore, beloved of Jesus Christ and of the Father, be on your guard at all times and in all things. Be on your guard against people that may carry you away and cause you to fall from your own steadfastness to Christ. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.